You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been exactly a week since Mauna Loa began erupting. Hawaii County has been issuing daily briefings on the flow rate and plans to deal with this emergency as the lava continues at a slow rate toward a vital highway. HPR Savannah Harriman Pote is there on the Big Island and has the latest update from Civil Defense. Good morning, Savannah. Good morning, Catherine. So what is the latest? So the latest is yes, the lava flow at the front is slowing down. It's moving at close to 50 feet per hour. That's about a third of how quickly it was moving just last Friday. And part of that is it's reached a flat plane. So rather than moving forward through an efficient lava canal, like you'll see on a steeper slope, it's spreading out. And as it spreads, it also cools, furthering how slowly it's moving. Okay, well, are they giving you any time frame for, uh, you know, when it might cross the road there, the Daniel K. Inouye uh, Highway? So comparatively to what we were hearing last week, officials are now saying it's a matter of if, not when, it's going to cross the highway, but it's definitely still a concern, and they are monitoring it closely. And I also want to say that just because the lava is slowing down at the front, it is still a spectacular sight to see, and many folks are traveling up to the old saddle viewing point in order to get a good look. And you were just up there uh, yesterday, uh, and and, uh, I guess it was pretty stormy, right? It was pretty stormy, yes. So you can save yourself a trip by checking out conditions before you go, just to make sure that it's clear. And it did clear up just before we left, close to 8.30 or 9 o'clock last night. And the viewing point is pretty straightforward. There are cones and signs indicating the entrance to the viewing access route they created after Old Saddle. It's just across from Mauna Kea State Recreation Area or the Gilbert Kahele Park. And there are actually volunteers from Hawaii County's Community Emergency Response Team, or CERT, and they're at the park, they're ready to answer your questions. I spoke with one CERT volunteer at the park, Kyra Bernhardt, and she estimated that 6,000 cars came to view the lava during her six-hour shift on Saturday evening, and it's a mix of residents, some of whom haven't had the chance to see Mount Aloha erupt in their lifetime, and also visitors who have come from all over the world to check out the eruption. Bernhardt also was on emergency response during the 2018 flows in Leilani neighborhoods, and she said that the mood now is much different. Oh my gosh, in Leilani, it was so devastating to all the people that lost property. And it was a very high tension, you know, with the helicopters flying over. It was just a very sad, energy-filled occasion here. People are just so excited. The mood is very uplifting. Um, They're just so grateful that they opened up, that the county opened up the old highway uh, for viewing. And it's just very upbeat. You know, Savannah, they did have that problem, though, yesterday where they shut the viewing area down for several hours because of that unexploded ordinance. Did they talk about that at the briefing? What else can you share? Yes, so there was a briefing yesterday in which they responded to some general concerns as well as the specific concern of the unexploded ordinance. This viewing area is very close to PTA land. And Lawrence Turlap is the Hoyt Island branch for DLNR Division of Conservation and Resources Enforcement. He said that it's just one more reason why that area is currently closed to the public. And so uh, uh, I understand that uh, they have been able to determine what uh, type of explosive it was. That's correct. The PTA confirmed this morning that the unexploded ordinance was a training ordinance, so not a bomb, so to speak, but something that would have produced a lot of smoke and noise and could be quite scary. So what's the message they want to get out uh, to people that go out there to, to view? 
Well, as Turlop said, there are many reasons why you shouldn't go out into that area. One is that it's dark and the terrain is uneven, but also because if you do find yourself in a bind, they will have to send response teams out after you. This is what he said. It's closed to ensure the public safety, but not only the public, but the first responders also that have to go in, um, just in case you know someone gets someone gets into trouble. As the UXO, the unexploded ordinance that was found today, shows it's the area is dangerous not only because the terrain is treacherous, but we're in such close proximity to the Pohakaloa training area, you know that there may be more errant rounds and UXOs in the area. Also, getting more accounts of hikers going into the area. They have had several individuals that they've stopped and had to follow up with enforcement offers. So they really are trying to encourage people not to do it. Okay. Any other tips for viewers out there who who want to see the lava up close? Yes, it is at elevation. It is at about 6,500 feet. So dress warmly. You don't necessarily know how long you'll be up there because of the traffic in the area so have a full tank of gas and if you're bringing your friends especially your little ones it's a wonderful sight to see but make sure you keep a close eye on your little ones as it gets dark and as people and cars are moving around yeah we want to make sure that it is safe for everybody but all right well thanks so much savannah thanks Catherine. That was HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. She's been uh, covering the Mauna Loa eruption from the Big Island. Check out our coverage online at hawaiipublicradio.org and stay tuned to HPR. We'll have updates as they become available. tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawa, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We'll be visiting one of Hawaii's last traditional salt ponds later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we got to thinking about this precious commodity in Hawaiian culture. Traditionally, salt, or pa'akai, was utilized to preserve fish and meat for long ocean voyages and as a seasoning. It was also used for cultural healing and medicinal practice. In ancient times, when someone was very ill, Healers would place tea leaf underneath and around the edges of the patient's lauhala mat. They would put uh, bowls of salt at the four corners of the mat or under the bed that the person was sleeping on to help keep the energy clear and clean. Hawaiian priests or kahuna used salt water for blessings and ritual cleansing. So for today's backyard quiz, can you name the Hawaiian deity believed to have salted the ocean to preserve the purity of the waters? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag.
support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Mayor resident Ed Texera can see the glow in the sky of this latest eruption from his home. The former civil defense chief also served in the Army and was in charge of the Pakaloa Training Area Facility before taking over the Emergency Management Agency. He was surprised, but not surprised, to learn of the discovery of unexploded ordnance yesterday. But he says public safety is paramount. He shared the history of the ordnance threat on the island's west side. It was 2016 when most of us on this side of the island received letters from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who were going to conduct a new survey. So residents had to sign an agreement with the Corps, mail it back in to them, allowing them to even come on your property, whether it's a residential house lot, farm, ranch, to conduct a new survey. And I believe that survey was going to take perhaps months to a year, even if longer. And why this particular area was going to be relooked by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for unexploded ordnance is because in the years after the outbreak of World War II, from late 1941 throughout the war, 1944 and beyond, but particularly in the early 40s and perhaps in the late 30s, our military forces in Hawaii then actually did maneuvers, You know, they did assaults on our beaches on the west side, particularly like from Kauai High and moving a little further south toward Hapuna. They did beach landings, and those forces like Marines and perhaps even the Army, you know, they basically, they used this whole site as a training area. So there was some live fire from troops, artillery, you know, moving upland toward the saddle. So over the years, unexploded ordnance of various types from grenades, artillery shells, motor shells were found. And so to have this whole thing about unexploded ordnance in this area is kind of like something we know about as Mm -hmm. residents here. We know about that. And there's a possibility, despite all the surveys that have happened over the years, something else could be found. So I'm not totally surprised that something was found near that viewing area of the Old Saddle Road. And you know, Catherine, as I reflect back on my years at Pohakaloa, I was in the Army. You know, I'd spent 26 years in the Army and retired from the Army. And one of my best duties was the Army assigned me up to the Pohakaloa training area. And I commanded that installation from 1986 to 1989. So I'm very, very familiar with the saddle and all the surrounding areas. And I'm just looking at various trace maps provided by the USGS on how the lava flow is moving toward the north and making its way, inching its way at about 40 feet per hour toward the direction of Saddle Road and the Daniel K. Inouye Highway. And I'm just trying to picture where were the boundaries for the live fire impact area, particularly on the eastern side of the installational range. And that lava flow is not that far away from the eastern boundary. So again, when you look at what occurred decades ago with the training of forces in preparation for various battles 
during World War II. The area was used by the military continuously after the war. If I recall, the presidential executive order to establish that firing range up at the Pohokaloa Saddle, I think was uh, put into effect in 1955. And the training area itself, as I recall, is about 160 square miles. So it's a pretty big area. You know, your listeners should try to picture in a live fire exercise at Pohakaloa, you can have the combination of airstrikes by low performance jet aircraft of different varieties. You could have attack helicopters. Years ago, there used to be tanks being fired up there. All kinds of munitions are fired for motors, artillery, small arms. And so things can happen as you fire from various weapon systems. Sometimes uh, you have uh, an ammunition malfunction. That particular round, for example, won't travel as far. Right, so have an errant. We can have, yeah, you can have an error. You can have uh, you know, propellant errors. And so finding something that close, whatever it was, and congratulations for whoever found it, by the way. <laughs> I don't know who found it because I'm just paying attention to what I can see on the news. It's quite an interesting thing, and I hope that's the last time they find something up there, that close to the old saddle road. And it's kind of a scary thing. I know the county, as well as the state, like Department of Land Natural Resources, are advising the public, you're in the viewing area, old saddle road, stay on the road, do not wander off. But we know people. And I just read something this morning that DLNR found three people, I think a trio, that said, coming down from the observatory road and walking down and when they were stopped these individuals said that they thought traffic was only restricted to cars but they thought they could walk in oh that's not good yeah it's not good so we one week in yeah and if you don't mind me bridging just a little bit you know my tour as the civil defense administrator for hawaii county in 2016 you know we did have a lava flow from fuo that went south and it made its way down to the ocean, and the flow stayed within the national park boundary. But nevertheless, it crossed over a road that the county, as well as FEMA, with FEMA's help because of the, it was really, I can take you back to 2014. In 2014, it was a busy year for Hawaii County, as well as the state for that matter. But you had Hurricane itself that made landfall along the Puna Coast. You had the dengue mosquito outbreak, if you recall, with 265 folks on the big island getting very, very ill over dengue. So there was a lot of things going on. But there's one thing that really happened as well, and was a finger of lava had gone from Pu'o'o and made its way eastward and stopped at the very edge of the town of Pahoa. And so the county and state, there was a declaration in place for, I think, Hurricane Acel, and then probably there's some subsequent declarations made. But in any event, the county and state received some FEMA assistance and funding. So then our mayor for the county then was Billy Kanoyme. I mean, I say God rest his soul, he's a great guy. So he put some investment on a road called Railroad Avenue from Puna to Hilo and put that back in shape. And above all, the most important thing from Kalapana, all the roads in Kalapana on Old Highway 137, which stretched from Kalapana and connected back along the seashore, okay, into the park, and connected back to the chain of Craters Road was cut off over many years of lava flows. So 
the county, with the cooperation of the National Park Service, and with FEMA's help and funding assistance, put back the road. And it was a gravel road that went from Kalapana and went right around the coast and connected back into the park. Well, I think the total roadway was about maybe about eight miles of a good gravel road that you mm-hmm. could use as an escape route. You know, should there be more activity from the southwest rift zone that we saw in 2018. Right. So was that then what provided then an alternate route? An alternate route to get people from that area, you know, around the chain of craters road and escape out. Well, getting back to this lava flow that I saw in 2016, it, it went out to the poly, dropped down the poly in the park side and cut off that road, cut uh-huh. it right off and into the ocean. Spectacular viewing, but it right. didn't take long. My whole point is... Once I saw that lava coming over the poly and making its way down, you know, I basically told our good mayor then that we got to get ready because it's going to provide, you know, an opportunity for people to get in close and, right. and see that lava. And get in sure, harm's sure way. enough, you know, between the Park Service and the county, we kept track of people using that gravel road mm-hmm. and or entering the park and looking at that. And, you know, i got to tell you, Catherine, I spent a lot of time out there trying to keep people safe, keep the road intact for future use. But we had people wandering into the lava flows, you know, at night, trying to get as close as they can to the lava. So I'm thinking back, and I'm looking at what's happening now with the Mauna Loa flow. And although it's it's a different type of environment, Mm -hmm. you can see it from the Daniel K. Noe Highway. You can see from the viewing area. You've got live streaming going on with USGS. It's kind of an attractive nuisance, though. As people can get closer, they'll try and get closer. You've got to... Thank you so much, Catherine. I was just (laughs) coming up to that. But, you know, despite all the way to see the lava flow, there are going to be people that want to get as close as they can. And it's it's a very, very hazardous thing to do. Now, when you now overlay possibility and, and perhaps probability knowing human nature right Mm -hmm. people are going to try and get as close as they can and we got to keep reminding them that you know hey look you are on the boundaries of a training area for live fire ordinance got that it's risky business so we have been hearing from ed texera former head of the hawaii civil defense agency now known as haima hawaii emergency management agency uh, Texera was underscoring the challenges of public safety as people try and get as close as they can to view the lava flows and who may not realize the risks that they put themselves at. Texera used to be the commander for the Army's Pahakaloa Training Area, a live fire facility in the 1980s, so he knows that area well. Following our call with him this morning, uh, we reached out to the Hawaii Department of Defense. A spokesman told us that the DOD has been talking about using National Guard troops to help with traffic control and public safety. An announcement is expected later today. Civil Beat has a story asking, why haven't our gas prices gone down like the rest of the country? Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, I was a little perplexed when I saw that, uh, what, gas went down to like three bucks or something on the mainland? 
Yeah, and again, um, I, I won't bury the lead here. I, I'm just going to say it straight up. I I can't say why the price hasn't gone down <laughs> yet, and the people I talked to couldn't either. The price of oil has gone down um, uh, quite a bit, uh, maybe $80, $80 a barrel, something like that, from 120 So it, it's down quite a bit. Um, and the prices have gone down on the mainland um, accordingly. You know, we're talking maybe three fifty a gallon, something like that, um, on the mainland versus uh, or even lower, three forty a gallon, according to AAA. You know, here we're still looking at um, maybe five five dollars and twenty cents a gallon, something for regular unleaded gasoline, something like that. Again, here it's down from a low. You know, during the summer, you might remember it was it was inching toward uh, $6 a gallon here, uh, more like five sixty or something like that. But it's still the highest. Last week, AAA reported uh, we were the only state in the country with gasoline, where gasoline was selling for more than, averaging more than $5 a gallon. So it, it just doesn't make sense um, what's going on, really. And it's frustrating because particularly the folks on the big island, you know, who have high gas prices and they have to drive far. And if that lava hits that main highway, you know, they're going to have to go around and go the long way, which uh, isn't going to be a lot of fun for their pocketbook, you know, or for their time. No, it, it, it's absolutely uh, true. The Again, it, it's a very, um, it, it's always been high here. It's always been one of the highest in the country. Um, but this is a situation where, as we as we spoke last week to Sumner Lacroix, you know, he was saying, "Look, this it's one thing to have a higher price, maybe a dollar above the national average, but during this time, we're now looking at maybe being a dollar seventy above the na- national average. So it, it's like the spread between what we pay and what they pay on the mainland is only getting bigger." Well, I know that my own, uh, you know, power bills are pretty high, and you know, and so you're you're trying to save everywhere you you can, but you know, uh, you know, the, if the gas prices are are still high, you're like, what's up with that? Well, right. So we have right. So that's the other issue. We have high electricity prices too, and again, a lot of our electricity is produced by um, from petroleum, uh, even more so these days on Oahu with the closing in September of the um, coal burning power plant to the AES plant in Kapolei. So we're um, yeah we're paying more too for electricity, and that's uh, so it's really a a tough time for people. Uh, it. Yeah, for people who are trying to make it here. Again, it's increasing electricity prices, increasing gasoline prices. These are things that are hard to get away from unless maybe you start hanging your clothes out to dry in the sun. <laughs> and and I know you did try to reach the consumer advocate to try and uh, figure out, you know, what's happening with our prices. I mean, there's Ukraine, right? But it's like, yeah. And well, right, and that has been an issue. I mean, we get petroleum from places in the past. We you know, we only have one refinery, which is now maybe that's part of the issue. Um, I don't know, but we used to get oil in 2021, according to the Federal Energy Information um, Administration. We got it from Argentina, Russia, and Libya. Um, in March of this year, uh, 
par, Hawaii said, we're cutting out oil from Russia. So it's not clear exactly where it's coming from to make up for that. But the point is, uh, we have limited sources of petroleum, and maybe that is factoring into uh, the cost. I don't know. It shouldn't be. But uh, who knows? Yeah. Well, we we need to keep asking because we don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll keep asking. We'll try to figure it out, and we'll follow up if we can get an answer. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking to uh, business reporter Stuart Yurton for today's Reality Check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Nikos Kailua near Aikahi Shopping Center, serving lunch, poo-poos, dinner, and handcrafted cocktails. Showcasing locally caught fresh fish with nightly live entertainment Tuesday through Sunday. NikosKailua.com. It's holiday time, and there's nothing like the delicious foods that get the mouth watering. How easy is it to make healthier food choices? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the best way to enjoy the fun foods of the holidays and stay well. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org. It has been a week since the public got a chance to weigh in on a bill defining where people can carry their guns on Oahu. The Honolulu City Council took up the mayor's bill for the first time this past week. HBR Sabrina Bowden joins us to talk about what happens next. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this goes back to the U.S. Supreme Court's sweeping ruling on gun laws earlier this year in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. And one of the parts that that has to do with is sensitive places. And that's the term being used for areas where guns and firearms should not be allowed. The Bruin decision outlined a few areas already, like schools and polling places, but it left areas for municipalities to designate their own areas. And what we're seeing across the country is a push to define what a sensitive place is. So right now in Hawaii, only Hawaii Island has passed a sensitive places bill. But that was after hours and weeks of county council discussions and more than a dozen amendments. And what we're now seeing is a similar bill at the Honolulu City Council. It was introduced by the administration, and the city council had a special meeting last week to discuss the bill and heard testimony from about 45 people and received about 150 pages of written testimony. And in the city council bill, it would cover any city-owned areas, schools, public transportation like the bus or the handy van, as well as specific places like the Honolulu Zoo and the Hawaii Children's Discovery Center. Mayor Rick Blangiardi spoke about the bill recently and his reasoning for wanting to introduce it. And from the time coming in to office, because of being in the midst of COVID, 
Everything has been about public safety. But if you look historically, Hawaii's had the lowest gun deaths per 100,000 in, in its history. And for the last 150 years, Hawaii has always been involved in supervising concealed carry. In fact, Honolulu has never issued a concealed carry in the past, okay? There's been a few issued here in Hawaii. So we look at this and we say that, you know, right now we're experiencing 2022, another month ago, probably the most gun violent year we've ever had in history. Been more than 611 mass shootings, which do not have a mass shooting, it's four people or more. More than 40,000 people this year have died as a result of gunshot wounds. That's not true here in Hawaii. Okay? We have two murders right now. You know, we don't have, I hear what people are saying, and I understand the desire to protect yourself, but we also want to protect the public, and that's why we're really strong on the sensitive places. I can't rationalize, with our society being what it is, why you would have to take a gun into the places that we've listed. Okay? This is not about protecting your family at night, and I certainly appreciate the passion in this and what a couple of the people that I've just heard say. But we're charged with the responsibility of the greater good in what this place is about. So historically, the argument is strongly on our side. The Bruin decision by the Supreme Court is on our side on what we're asking to do and have passed as a bill. It is about public safety. And one part of the bill that's receiving some pushback has to do with private property. The bill offers a default rule that private businesses and organizations may decide whether or not firearms are allowed on their property. Andrew Namiki Roberts is the director of the Hawaii Firearms Coalition. He's one of the only people in the state who is certified to teach a concealed carry weapons training course. He said the current version of the bill is too broad and could potentially implicate those who have the proper licensing for just being in an area that's not clearly defined. We do not see sensitive places as being something that should be completely got rid of. I know coming from a gun rights organization, saying that we agree with some sensitive places is not something that you're probably expecting. But those places need to be limited in scope to places where it is traditional and historical that they could be banned. Those places, as the Supreme Court has discussed, would be court buildings, schools and daycares, polling places, prisons and jails and legislative assemblies. That's the buildings of these locations, not including parking structures. We need to have a way for people to visit these locations unarm themselves and be able to arm themselves after. In addition to that, private businesses should be able to ban guns on their property. I have no problem with that. Property rights are just as important as gun rights. But if they do so, there needs to be legislative in place that means that they have signs that are uniform, large, and clearly indicated so that legal law-abiding gun owners do not accidentally break the law. That's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at this city council meeting, we're seeing a lot of the conversation that occurred in at Hawaii County mirrored here. This includes concerns that a sensitive places bill covers too many places, has vague language, and that it may interfere with the right to bear arms. City council members expressed some concern that this bill may not hold up in court. We even heard from some people who testified last week that they would take the county to court over this bill. The Office of Corporation Counsel, that's the county's lawyers, they say that the bill is constitutionally sound and the bill ultimately passed through its first reading with council members Toba and Andrea Topola in opposition. Topola said the bill is too broad and suggested more work on the bill. I do think that we live in a free society where we should list what is prohibited and not what is allowed. The places that are mentioned in the Brewing ruling were schools government buildings, legislative assemblies, 
polling places, courthouses. But it also said that new and analogous sensitive places are constitutionally permissible. I do believe here the litmus test is clear that it has to be defined with a perimeter and access to law enforcement. I do not support this version of the bill. I am looking forward to working with the administration if they're open to a CD1. In conclusion, I've been very grateful to learn so much about the Constitution during my research and preparation for this hearing. I do know that it's the one thing we swear to do as legislators, and I want to encourage the chief of police to continue working on building our law enforcement ranks. If we are serious about protecting the public, we need to fill all of our vacancies and we need to prosecute all the crimes. So then this bill is going to be advancing or it's going to be sent back to committee? Yes. Chair Tommy Waters says that he intends to send it to the Committee on Executive Affairs and Legal Affairs. Okay. And then what about the other counties? So Hawaii County is the only one who has passed the bill. Mayor Mitch Roth, with the Mauna Loa eruption, he hasn't been able to check out the bill yet, but that's currently in his hands on whether or not he will sign it. Okay. Anything broader at the legislature? So there is conversation that there will be a bill introduced at the state level. And that's kind of what some counties are considering, either waiting for the state to come up with something. But what we've heard from Mayor Blangiardi as well as Hawaii County, they are more concerned about wanting to have the sensitive places here now before waiting for the state ledge to decide when that could be in effect, maybe later in the year. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. We have been hearing from HVR Sabrina Bowden on the mayor's bill to restrict where people can carry guns on Oahu. Look for her story on hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. On your Monday Stargazer, we learn about a local collaboration with NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. Here's astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence with the details. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and find in the sky. And we're fortunate to have astronomer Christopher Phillips, as usual, to guide us through all of this. Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in our evening skies after sunset. The planets are spread out from east to the southwest. The moon this week is passing through its full moon phase, and so stargazing conditions will be very challenging indeed. Now today, Chris has one of those exciting collaborations that I'm sure a lot of folks were anticipating could be possible, where we have a locally based source that is collaborating with that James Webb Space Telescope. Is that accurate? Exactly. Yeah, it's a good one. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has teamed up with the large Keck 2 telescope in Hawaii to image Saturn's moon Titan. The images, captured in near-infrared light, have revealed stunning details on the surface of Titan that were previously hidden, including cloud patterns and other surface features. This discovery is one of the first in which JWST has collaborated with a large ground based observatory. And what's kind of cool is, from my understanding, Titan usually shrouded by a really thick atmosphere and you, you can't see anything. 
Yeah, exactly. That's what makes this impressive. They actually studied Titan in this instance, not using the visible spectrum, because you wouldn't really see anything. Instead, they used near-infrared, which mm. revealed these hidden details. And it's also really cool, because not only does Titan have that exclusivity, sort of, or co-exclusivity with the thick atmosphere, but it also... It's got uh, oceans and lakes, yeah? <laughs> yeah, but with one critical difference to the Earth. The oceans and lakes of Titan are made of liquid methane, <laughs> not liquid water. <laughs> that trip was looking good, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say it might be a vacation spot in the future, though. <laughs> and uh, the main point, though, of these observations was not so much to study the surface, but the weather, right? Oh, yeah. The main area of interest here for planetary scientists is, of course, the weather. Now, Titan is extraordinary because it has cloud systems and storms that change with seasons. And yes, there is a summertime on Titan, despite it being extremely cold. Well, we'll make sure we bring our jackets if we're going there for sure. And any future observations coming up, Chris, with this uh, pairing of astronomical resources? Oh yeah, you bet. Keck is involved in a long-term monitoring program for Titan, and JWST will once again be contributing to the study. It is hoped that we can develop a deep understanding of this mysterious moon without actually having to go there and be very, very cold. <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips and another fun Stargazer. Thanks. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. Now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Today's quiz was about salt, the ingredient that we all love that makes food tastier, richer, and more delicious. During ancient times, pa'akai was used both as a seasoning and also a natural preservative, salting food for long voyages. It was also important to sacred practices as the physical manifestation of the ocean, the source of healing and purification, pa'akai was used to cleanse and uplift a person's well-being. Uh, in Pa'akai Blessings, uh, conducted by Kahuna, Hawaiian priest, salt water is essential. Uh, the sprinkling of salt water combined with invocations to Hawaiian gods or Christian prayers is a common practice when ritually cleansing a space. In ancient stories, it was passed down that the Hawaiian deity Kane salted the ocean to preserve its purity. And that was the answer we were looking for today, and we stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to Talk Back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons, furnishing homes in Hawaii since 1909, featuring a design team offering personalized consultations to help bring dreams to life, online at cswoeandsons.com. What's your jam? Perhaps you're a news junkie, a music explorer, or someone with an insatiable thirst for knowledge. Whatever the reason, tis the season of giving. HPR's end-of-year membership campaign is around the corner, Support the essential listening you rely on. Become a first-time supporter with a $10 monthly gift. Or, if you've given before, you can make an additional gift. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Salt, or pa'akai, has held a significant place in Hawaii's history for decades. Native Hawaiians use sea salt to season and preserve food, not just for storage on land, but also to provide nourishment during ocean voyages. It was also used for religious and ceremonial purposes and as a medicine. This week, we're highlighting salt stories and how salt is produced around the state. Today, we're kicking off our series by giving you a taste of the old school. The conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with Kule Gaison, whose family has been part of harvesting pa'akai for generations from the Hanapepe Salt Flats on Kauai. It sits on a clay field along the Garden Isle's southern coast near the runway for Port Allen Airport. Gaison also shares the process of harvesting the salt and what makes it so unique. First of all, Hawaiian salt is only made during the summer months. During the winter, it is flooded in the area, so we are not able to make Hawaiian salt. It's something that's passed on from generation to generation. So it's the only place in the world that kind of has all those elements in the area that make it special. There's a couple of things. One, water travels underground into a well, and the wells are actually kept clean by brine shrimp. So it gives the salt a little bit sweeter taste. The beds are made out of this black clay that's kind of only found in that area. And so you harvest the black clay in the beginning of each season and you create this clay pot looking thing. How many total families uh, have? Each family has its own well. 24 total families have access to these fields. How did that come about? Is it just descendants? Is it just lineage? This is... Uh, Yeah, it's just passed down from generation to generation and it doesn't really go anywhere. Like we haven't had anyone new ever. Mm -hmm. I've been making salt for, you know, 40 40 years now. My dad's been making salt for 70 years. It's the same same spot, same place. Like I, I tell people, you know, I get to stand in the exact same place my grandmother stood to create a product to give away. And we do it the exact same way she did back in the day. So the beds that we make, mm-hmm. the black clay, so around our hands and our knees, we do this wax on, wax off. Yeah. We take a yeah. rock rock first and we bind the clay together. Then we let it bake in the sun and then we take a smooth rock and we smooth it out. So you have the, the well that you draw the water from and then you have the beds that you yeah. fill with water and allow to evaporate, right? So that the salt yeah. remains in, and in the bed. So we're building a clay pot mm-hmm. so that when the water goes in, it doesn't seep out. So you want something that can hold the water for the whole season. And it's the exact same beds that we're using. So we just rework the same bed that, that was there the previous year. Do the beds get eroded like you were saying over the winter there's some flooding involved and you have to rebuild the beds. oh yeah so we come in and we just scrape out all that old stuff yeah. and we redo the beds with another layer of black clay that we find in the area and so when you put the water into the beds how long does it take 
for the salt to become visible? And then how long does it take to harvest the salt? In a good season, it's three months. It all depends. So the first harvest is always the longest. It takes about three weeks before we do maybe our first harvest. And it all depends. If it rains, Mm -hmm. it melts, right? So we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's one issue. And the second issue is if it's not sunny, it's not hot enough. But first we prepare all the beds. We go on the weekends. So we start at 6 o'clock in the morning and then we go tell when we finish. But after the beds are prepared, then we start the watering. So we go every two to three days, depending on how hot it is. We refill the beds. We take water from the well and we move it into the actual bed. Then what it does is it starts to get kind of uncertain and thick the water. Mm-hmm. And it starts to form salt crystals and the crystals get heavy and they drop to the bottom which then creates this these layers. So the bottom layer is like more reddish, and that's what you give to people who fish so they can line their coolers. You give it to people who do blessings, you know, things of that nature. The middle layer that you harvest is a little bit more pinkish. That's where you kind of get that. That's the ones that we give out. We try and separate the salt as much as we can just to give those different colors. And the, the whitest salt, does that end up being the top layer? Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of more what we use for our table salt or things of that nature. Harvest by layer, so it's kind of like a rake when you break up the salt okay. into baskets. And then we, we go home, we bring this home, and we actually dry it. We wash it on site, and then we take it home and dry it in drying tables. People go through it, they take out any bugs, they take out any debris, kind of give it a rinse in salt water, and then it goes on drying tables at home. It takes about a month to dry it before we package it. The saltier and the hotter it is, the faster salt. So like this year was a really good year for us. Production was great this year. We probably had one of the best years we've had. And so once the salt is harvested and it's separated by grade and, and by purpose, what what happens then? Is this, I, I read that you guys don't sell the salt. Do you trade it or do you give it away? Where does it go? Who gets to be able to have some of the salt? My dad gives it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Anybody who asks my father, and he's really good about packaging it up and shipping it out and all those kinds of things. I'm a little bit more particular and I tell people they're not salt worthy mm-hmm. because, you know, I fight really hard to protect the area. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, are you standing with me? Because if you're standing with me and you run over and you called someone and you picked up some trash, then sure, I'll, I'll share it all day, every day. But my father spoke me and said I need to be a little bit nervous about it and keep it out. So this year I'm trying my best to be a little bit more you know, giving it out. We do try and also make lists of people that we give it to yeah. just so we can see the reach of how far it goes and how much people we actually are able to give salt to. Back in the day, we used to go out five-gallon buckets. Now, at least sandwich bags or gallon-sized bags is kind of the go-to right now. Mm-hmm. We don't really ask for anything in return. We just kind of give it. As someone who has benefited from the salt and enjoys the salt, I certainly don't feel like I should just get it. I feel like I should contribute or reciprocate in some way. Is there opportunities for people to come and help with the harvest or help with the prep? 
Oh, I love when people help because when people come and help, number one, it educates. Mm-hmm. Number two, I don't have to do that much work. I can just stand there and point fingers. So, because people love it, like you get in, you get dirty, you get to, you know, they say if you stand in on in earth and work it, then you rejuvenate your the flow, right, yeah. of your body and stuff. So you just get this feeling of being able to create a product just because you love your culture and your history and all these things and then to give it away and we pay out everybody who comes and works you work you get paid and so that's just how it is so i'm all about it i'm all about education talking about it showing people explaining the process it's one of those things where like if i say hey salt patch is in trouble they're going to expand the airport that's when i want everybody who owns salt or who's tasted it or appreciated it to make a phone call or write a letter or sign a petition that says, hey, I stand with them. Please don't screw around with this because it is still a big part of our culture and our traditions. I know just a a couple of years ago, the helicopter company or something was trying to expand the airport and you guys had to... I mean, they put in a bathroom without a permit. Mm -hmm. Again, water travels on the ground. We survive on what happens on the ground. So if you go and you put in these illegal restrooms without the proper septic and sewer system, where does the water go? You know what I mean? If you take your helicopter and you hang out above us and spin those blades and all those dust and the dirt and debris just blows around, what happens to our clay? What happens to our salt? What happens to all that kind of stuff? When you think about the future of the salt ponds and you think about the families that are currently involved, what do you think will happen two, three generations down the road? Do you think there's enough family coming up in the generations that it'll be able oh, to pass on? It's been an interesting ride to see. Like back in the day when I was growing up, I wanted no part of the salt. You could not catch me there. But I had children and then I was like, wait a minute, this is important. Like This is a part of our, not a lot of people get to say that they have a salt patch and, and that they, you know, get to do this thing. So my kids were... So they were raised in it. So it's been, re- I think, and more of my generation and the generation below me are more active in being a part of it. So it's been really beautiful to see the wide range of generations that are now coming out. Whereas back in the day, my father's generation, it was just then. It wasn't as popular as it is today. That was Kuule Gaisoa talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about salt production in Hanapepe, Kauai. We'll have pictures of the salt beds on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that winds it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear about the potential health effects as this eruption phase draws out. Have an eruption concern? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. And a reminder, you can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. All of our shows are archived, so you can listen back on our website as well. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the Conversation. Thank you.